0: Welcome back CrimeHolics. It's your host Holly and I am back today with yet another episode. Today's case is another one that took place outside of the United States. It has been requested many times by our friends across the pond to cover more cases that takes place outside of the US. And my last episode on Molly McLaren took place in the UK. Today's case takes us over to Australia. I do want to forewarn everyone that this case does involve the death of a child, which I know can be extremely hard for some people to listen to. This case also involves rape, so if this is something that is triggering for you, please just skip this episode. I know that many people struggle with hearing things like rape and the murder of a child, so please, if that is you, just skip it. No hard feelings. I also want to tell everyone that if I accidentally mispronounce something, please understand that I do try my hardest to get things right when speaking. I have to admit that I do use Google way too often when trying to figure out how to pronounce things correctly, but it is about a 50-50 shot on whether Google actually gets it right for me people often come for me in the comments on TikTok and I mean absolutely no disrespect when I make these minor errors. I promise you that it is a complete accident. Anywho, without further ado, let's dive in to today's case on the tragic death of Ebony Simpson. In August of 1992, Ebony Jane Simpson was a beautiful, blonde-haired nine-year-old girl living with her parents, Peter and Christine Simpson, and her two older brothers. Her family lived in Bargo, New South Wales, Australia. And for reference, Bargo is about an hour and ten minutes drive south of Sydney, or just about 95 kilometers. To Christine and Peter, Bargo was the perfect place to live and raise a family, and they had lived there for about 14 years. They bought this cute little farmhouse and fixed it up and made a life for themselves. Ebony was born in 1983 and was adored by her whole family. They really felt that her arrival completed their family and that she was just this beautiful little girl with so much personality. She and her mother were very close, and she describes Ebony as being a very soft, kind, and sweet young girl. After school on August 18, 1992, Ebony came home and visited with her mother like she did daily. They talked about her day at school and things that she had learned ebony told christine that on that day they had a police officer visit the class and talk to them in depth about stranger danger which is something that i think most parents want their kids to be aware of christine and ebony discussed how if there was ever a situation that ebony found herself in that she needed to come home and tell her mother immediately ebony agreed and promised her mother that she would always tell her if something happened That night, Christine read a story to her daughter, tucked her into bed, and kissed her goodnight, not knowing that that would be the last time she said goodnight to her daughter. The following morning, Ebony woke up and did her daily morning routine and went off to school. Typically, after school, Christine would meet Ebony at the bus stop, which was just one kilometer up the road from the Simpson family home. But on that day, Wednesday, August 19th, 1992, Christine got hung up at a meeting in town with an insurance agency, and she was running late to meet Ebony. So she asked one of Ebony's brothers to go down to the bus stop and meet their sister. But for whatever reason that day, his bus ended up running late. And when he got off of his bus, he assumed that Ebony had already walked home. When Christine arrived just a short time later, she noticed that Ebony's shoes weren't outside of the door, which is where she always took them off. Something within Christine started screaming that something was not right. A quick search of the home and surrounding property showed no signs of Ebony's return and instantly Christine told her husband to phone the police and she ran down to the bus stop to search for Ebony. Christine ran up and down the road searching for her daughter. There was a creek nearby that she also searched quickly to see if Ebony was there playing. And she even went to one of the homes located near the stop to see if maybe her daughter was there. Not a single sign of Ebony was found, and this was completely out of character for Ebony. She wouldn't just leave to go to a friend's house to play without telling her family. She was a very responsible young girl, so her family just knew in their gut that something wasn't right. When the authorities arrived at the Simpson home, they began their own search and started making a plan on what to do next. They learned quickly that Ebony did in fact take the bus home from school that day and she for sure got off at her regular bus stop and she was then seen walking towards the direction of her home. When locals started seeing the heavy police presence, many approached them to ask what was going on. From one of those male individuals, they learned that his two sons had stated that they had seen Ebony walking down the road. They also said that just before Ebony neared the corner that her house was just beyond, that there was a man in a yellow car parked on the side of the road, and it appeared that he was working on the engine of his car because the hood was propped open. At this point in time, the boys didn't have much further detail to tell them about the man, but it was a good start knowing that there was someone else that had been in the vicinity of Ebony's home and that she would have passed this person when walking. Police started gathering their normal information from Peter and Christine about Ebony, trying to get a better understanding on who she was as a child. They quickly learned that this is completely out of the normal for her. She was a reliable and responsible little girl. She always made sure to have constant communication with her family if she was going somewhere or who she was going to be playing outside with ebony also came from a very strong and stable family they had no issues with anyone no drama to speak of within the family or with neighbors or people in the small sleepy town community of bargo after speaking with the homeowners of the house that were just beyond where that car was supposedly parked nobody further had seen ebony that day So they believed that whomever was in that car was responsible for whatever happened to Ebony. They believe that she did not make it beyond that point. As the hours tick by and darkness falls, no sign of Ebony has been located. With it getting late in the evening, investigators called upon the local community to come out and help search for Ebony. It seemed like everybody who lived within Bargo came out to assist in this search. Helicopters were brought in as well to assist in the search, and they did not leave a single stone unturned in the search for ebony. They searched buildings and acres upon acres of brushland, hoping to find any kind of clue. The following morning, August 20th, investigators were still trying to locate ebony, and they began questioning her family about anything unusual leading up to her disappearance. Christine had stated initially that she hadn't seen anything suspicious, but when investigators started asking about anyone new to the area that they may have seen or anyone who didn't belong or any vehicles traveling by that usually didn't, this was when Christine remembered that she had seen a man with a car parked down just a ways from the bus stop. She recalled that the car was a small yellow Dotson 120Y. And this had the investigator's ears perking up because now they had two witnesses who had stated that they have seen a small yellow car within the area. Both on the day that she went missing and now sometime before that as well. Had this individual been watching Ebony for a while... Was this someone who purposely targeted her or waited for the right time to strike? Or was this just a crazy coincidence? When they started asking people from the neighborhood if they also had seen a car in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, many of them had said yes, they've seen it multiple times in the two weeks before she went missing and even on that night after she went missing. And for many of the individuals, including Christine, they all had seen the car on various days in the same way the two boys had seen it when Ebony was walking towards it. A younger man was standing outside of it looking as if he was fixing something in the motor with the hood propped up. So investigators went back to those two boys who had seen Ebony right before she vanished and started asking them further questions about what they had seen. The two boys, who were teenagers, both agreed that the car was a yellow Mazda 808. The man had been standing outside the car with the hood propped up, seemingly as if he was having car troubles. But the boys were able to give a little bit further information about the looks of this car. They stated that it was in fact yellow, and it also had mud that was splattered up the sides of it. But what was most notable to them was the patchwork on the body of the car. They said that you could see where someone had recently painted the vehicle in spots where damages had been fixed. The teen boys were so precise in their description that they even were able to tell them the exact color of the car, which was a color called yellow ochre. And though Ebony's mother Christine thought that the car was a Datsun and the boys said it was a Mazda, when comparing these two cars together, they do look very similar. So investigators were quite certain that this was the same person that had been seen both by Christine and the boys. Outside of the Simpson home, they set up a command post where volunteers were reporting in and the media was there to help spread awareness on ebony. The volunteers were divided into groups and then sent off to search individual areas to make sure that all grounds were covered. Not only did they have volunteers from the small community, but they also had a ton of different task forces and special search teams coming in from outside of Bargo. One of the teams arrived late, so they missed the mass briefing about what was going on, and so they stayed back to get caught up on everything. The investigator in charge was bringing the guys up to speed about what they were looking for as far as what Ebony was wearing, what she would be carrying, what she looked like, and he also informed them about the fact that they were looking for a yellow Mazda 808. And one of the guys said, oh, you mean like that car over there? And he pointed in the direction of a car that was parked over near all of the volunteers' cars. This instantly set off alarm bells ringing, and I'm sure they're ringing for you, too. As we have learned from various different true crime things that we listen to or watch, oftentimes these perpetrators will get involved in searches and it is their way of trying to keep tabs and see how close the investigation is to finding the person or figuring out what happened. But investigators in this situation couldn't exactly jump to conclusions. However, with that said, though, they kind of start zeroing in on this car and who it belonged to. So they asked Christine to go into as much detail as possible that she could remember about the man who she had seen with that yellow car. And despite all of the emotional turmoil that Christine was going through, she was able to thoroughly describe that man. And right there, the detective was able to create a sketch of the description that she felt fit the man that she had seen. The detective took the image outside back to the command post and started talking with his colleagues and showed them the composite sketch that Christine was able to help create. And what came as a complete shock, that composite sketch resembled a man that the investigators had just been chatting it up with. So they kind of waited it out and wanted to see which person came back to that yellow Mazda 808 to see if it was that same man. One of the investigators went to Christine and told her that he believed that the man that she had seen with that yellow car was currently on the property helping search for her daughter. They brought Christine outside to get a look at this car, and unfortunately, she couldn't positively say for sure if that was the car, but she did feel that it looked similar enough to the car that she had seen parked on the side of the road days before she lost Ebony. Finally, the owner of the car returned to it, and sure enough, it was the man who resembled Christine's composite sketch. Investigators approached him and started asking him questions about the car and his movements on the day that Ebony went missing. They also called over a forensic photographer to come over and just get some pictures of the car. To the police's surprise, the owner of the car was very compliant and he answered all of their questions and he didn't seem evasive at all. And they asked him to open the trunk of the car, or as they say in Australia, the boot of the car. The man did so willingly, and he seemed very cool and calm and collected, and he really didn't raise any kind of suspicions with how he was acting. But investigators knew that just because someone doesn't seem suspicious doesn't mean that they're not involved. So they told him that they wanted to bring the car back to the station for more testing, and they also told him that they wanted to take pictures of the car to kind of pump it out to the media to let everybody know that this is the kind of car that we're looking for. The car was towed back to the police station, and the forensic sweep of the car began. They also asked the owner of the car to come in for further questioning, which once again he complied. They learned that his name was Andrew Garforth, and he was fairly new to the area of Bargo. He and his wife had moved to the area just a few months prior from Western Australia, and not only was Andrew married, but he also had two children of his own. From what they could see since living in the area, he wasn't really an issue, and nobody had reported anything about him, And this all seemed so wild and kind of out of the blue for a man who seemed to have his life, essentially, together. Again, they asked him about his movements that day and he stated that he went to a hardware shop and purchased two bolts and then he visited a video store to return a movie. When they asked him the direction that he had driven, he did not say he was anywhere near the area where Ebony was last seen on Arena Road. The way that he said that he went was exactly the way he would have had to have traveled to get to the destinations without going out of his way to go by where Ebony was. After a few more questions, investigators were kind of like floundering around trying to figure out anything else that they could ask him. And so they asked him once more to go over again what his day looked like and the route that he traveled. But to their surprise, Andrew said a completely different route on his second account of the story of his day. But this time he says that he turned left onto Arena Road and then right onto Bargo Road. Because his story changed dramatically, this again sent major red flags for authorities. And all of a sudden, just 15 minutes into the interview with Andrew Garforth, he stuns them with what comes out of his mouth next. He said, quote, when the young girl was walking past the car, I grabbed her and put her into the boot, end quote. He went on to say that he was parked along the road putting oil into his car and decided just to grab Ebony and throw her into the boot and drive away. As they questioned him further, he just kept letting it all spill out, He stated that Ebony asked him at one point if he was going to let her go, and he told her that he didn't know. He had taken Ebony to a secluded area not far from her home. When he stopped, he went to the back of the car where she was, and he took speaker wires from the car. He proceeded to hog tie Ebony, with her hands bound behind her back and her feet tied to her wrists. And he said that he picked her up and threw her into the dam at the wildlife sanctuary that was near her home. They rushed people out to this wildlife sanctuary in hopes that maybe, just maybe, Sweet Ebony had survived. Even Andrew Garforth agreed to go to the location and show them where to find Ebony. On August 20th, just 30 hours after Ebony had gone missing, a team of investigators approached the dam in the wildlife sanctuary that was located just six kilometers from Ebony's home. And the first thing that they see was Ebony's pink lunchbox floating in the water. But what they noticed the most was the lack of movement on the water, which eerily represented to them the fact that Ebony most likely was no longer with them. I have to say that while researching this case, it was extremely hard. There is video footage of Andrew Garforth standing at the water's edge, reenacting how he tossed poor Avani into the water, and he's doing it with absolutely zero remorse. I had to stop my research and sit back for a moment because the tears in my eyes were making it hard to see. I can handle a lot, but the thought of what Ebony must have been thinking in the moments that she was bound in such a horrific way, and then tossed into the water like a piece of garbage, thinking of what she must have been going through brought me to my knees. According to investigators, had Ebony survived being tossed into the water tied like that and had somehow made it to the shoreline... She would have died from the frigid temperatures that they had during the night. Officers began trying to find Ebony's body in the dam, but it was so dark outside and nearly midnight. Around 2 o'clock in the morning, the police knocked on the door of Peter and Christine Simpson's home to give them the heartbreaking news. But unfortunately, Andrew Garforth wasn't finished confessing to the crimes that he committed against Ebony. He told police that he took Ebony onto the bank of the dam, tied her up, but before throwing her into the dam, he sexually assaulted her and then got rid of her. Andrew Garforth was charged with murder. When the community finally heard of the gruesome details of the sexual assault and murder of nine-year-old Ebony Simpson, they were outraged, and rightfully so. When Andrew had to be in court, they had crowds of locals surrounding the building all shouting profanities and telling him to watch his back. One thing that was very hard for Ebony's family was the fact that Andrew had walked all over the family's property in the hours after Ebony's disappearance, knowing fully where she was that whole time. When looking back at the films of the briefings with all of the volunteer searchers, investigators spot Andrew Garforth smack dab in the middle of all the people, listening intently to the directions of where they were going to be searching and how. If there is ever anything good that can come from such a horrific and senseless crime, Ebony's case has helped spark a change in how victims' families in Australia are dealt with. When her tragedy happened in 1992, the Simpson family was left trying to figure out how to handle their grief. The Simpson family tried to receive counseling and help with navigating their grief, but nobody would take their case on. After all, this was something that many of these counselors had never seen or dealt with before. They had no idea how to help a family who had gone through one of the worst imaginable things possible. Eventually, they were put in touch with the family of murder victim Anita Cobby. Those who put them in touch with Anita's family felt that maybe having someone to talk to who had gone through a similar experience would help them get through their grieving process. And with the help of Anita's parents, Gary and Grace Lynch, as well as a handful of other people, they started the Homicide Victim Support Group, which the HVSG is now a nonprofit organization based out of New South Wales. In the description of this episode, I will have the direct link to the HVSG website where you can read about all the support they give, events that are upcoming, as well as read about how the group started. There is also a place where you can donate directly to the organization if you wish to do so. In the weeks after the Homicide Victim Support Group was first founded, the trial for Andrew Garforth began. They had really good evidence against Andrew. Not only did they have his confession, but they also had evidence from the vehicle. Ebony's fingerprints were found inside the trunk or the boot of the car. It had appeared that she kind of was scratching at the surface of the car and it left the marks on the inside of it. This just further proved that she had indeed been inside the trunk of that car. They also found both Ebony's shoe prints as well as Andrew's shoe prints, which he had been wearing on that day that he was arrested in the mud around the dam. Ebony's hair had also been found inside the car as well as on clothing that Andrew had been wearing that day, and the most damning evidence, of course, is the DNA evidence that was found on Ebony's body. Andrew never once tried to claim he was innocent in court, and the pile of evidence as well as his confession was enough to earn him a life sentence in prison. One thing that stuck out that Ebony's mother said was that there is a rehabilitation for perpetrators in prison, but there is no rehabilitation for the families of victims. After the murder of her daughter, Christine really poured her heart and soul and even anger into creating change for the better in the name of Ebony. She created the concept of Ebony House, which according to the HVSG website, Christine identified the need for some kind of recovery center for families affected by the murder of a loved one. So with the help of many friends and members of the HVSG, the first ever Ebony House was opened on December 8th, 1995, and this house gave people affected by homicide a place to go when they felt overwhelmed with everyday life. The Homicide Victim Support Group went on to make historic changes in Australia. They now have members of the group who go to the police academy where they educate the cadets on how to best respond to families and what to say and what not to do. In 2015, the Daily Mail wrote an article about Christine's outrage at the new privileges that Andrew Garforth was receiving in prison. According to the article, after 23 years in prison, Andrew's classification has been downgraded from an A-grade maximum security prisoner to a B-grade, which meant that he could apply for prison jobs and even enroll in courses offered at the prison. Christine worried that this decision will set a precedent for other high-risk prisoners to be shown leniency. This new B grade also allows Andrew up to four hours of outside time a day, as well as being able to apply for a TV in his cell. Christine was absolutely furious by this, and rightfully so. Her daughter's life was stolen from her when she had so much life left to live. And now he is being allowed these luxuries that her dead daughter won't ever get the opportunity to enjoy again. Ebony's story is the one that I think will stay with me for a long time to come. It was completely senseless and pure evil. New South Wales abolished the death penalty for murder in 1955, and that's completely unfortunate because if there was ever a murderer who I believe deserves the death penalty the most, it would be Andrew Peter Garforth. Today, he is 58 years old and is still serving out his life sentence for the rape and murder of Ebony Jane Simpson. Crimeholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you join us by searching Crimeholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and you can also follow us at Crimeholics.podcast on both Instagram and on TikTok. If you want to follow me personally, you can find me on Instagram at Crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care.